0: Semi, thank you very much indeed. Well, it's a great delight to welcome Chris and uh, Christian Book Discounters to us this morning. Um, If you haven't yet had a chance to browse the book table, I do warmly commend it to you. Uh, There are some tremendous treasures there. Perhaps I could just mention three. Um, This one is called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell and his son, Sean McDowell. Uh, Josh McDowell, for many years, was a skeptic. Uh, Perhaps the book he's most famous for is evidence that demands a verdict. And so he writes with a tremendous sympathy for the skeptic and the outsider. And as the title would suggest, the point of this book is to show that Jesus actually was rather more than a carpenter. It's a lovely book. I warmly recommend it. Uh, I think it says here there are 15 million copies in print, which is not bad for a Christian book these days. Then this book uh, by Tim Keller with Kathy Keller, The Songs of Jesus is a daily devotional based on the book of Psalms. Uh, If you find, as I do from time to time, that Psalms is not an easy book to use in one's devotions, this will help you. Uh, He takes short sections from each of the Psalms, and you just get a paragraph each day with his comment and a a devotional reflection uh, that is immensely helpful in one's daily praying. So, The Songs of Jesus, Tim Keller, that's another brilliant book to have on your shelf. Perhaps one of the most famous Christian books ever written in the last hundred years anyway was Knowing God by Jim Packer. And um, if you know Jim Packer's writing at all, he's absolutely brilliant, but he's a bit chewy. His sentences uh, are rather long. He's a bit like trying to read the Apostle Paul. So it's very good to find this book, uh, a 365-day devotional, where that book is broken down into short daily devotions. And again, there's real treasure in that, so I warmly commend it to you. Um, then you'll have heard that Brenda, in her prayers, mentioned the elders and deacons meeting. Uh, we're supposed we're trying to get together to do our planning for 2022. Please do keep us in your prayers. We were originally scheduled to meet online tonight, but there there is load shedding. Scheduled for six o'clock, and I have sent out a message asking if we could postpone it till seven o'clock. Tomorrow evening. I've heard from some of you, but not all of you. Please could you uh, just have a look at that and get back to me. And then I think the last thing to say is that I suppose there are some books, some chapters in the Bible. We hear them read on Sunday morning and we think to ourselves, I know that. And it can be very tempting when we find ourselves reading chapters like that to allow our minds to wander And I think I'm on fairly safe ground when I say that Revelation 13 is not one of those chapters. So I'm making a plea up front for your close attention. Won't you please have the chapter open in front of you? And uh, I will then lead us in prayer and we'll get straight into it. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your wisdom would be with us this morning. Please give us understanding to calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. Give us wisdom and not foolishness. Give us understanding and not confusion. Speak to our hearts and cause us, Lord, to be submissive to your great and holy word. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Joanna was uh, desperate to find meaning and purpose in her life. Uh, Before she was married, she lacked any sense of uh, satisfaction or fulfillment. and So she thought, well, when I get married, um, I'm going to find it. I will be satisfied. Uh, So she did get married, and uh, it was a good marriage. It was a happy marriage. But after a few years, that that sense of emptiness was still eating away at her on the inside. And so she said, well, okay, um, perhaps if I have children, maybe then I'll find the fulfillment and the satisfaction that I'm looking for. And the Lord graciously blessed her with children Her children were everything she could possibly have hoped for. But they still didn't fill that gap in her heart. So then she said to herself, well, maybe if we can just buy that holiday home on the garden route, uh, I'll be able to get away and relax. Uh, Maybe then I'll find what I'm looking for. And so uh, Joanna and her husband bought a lovely holiday home, Overlooking the ocean. They went there as often as they could, but that emptiness was still there. In fact, over the years, whatever she did, however hard she tried, nothing worked. Nothing she pursued gave her lasting, deep seated satisfaction. Well, uh, Joanna's not a real person. I made that up. But uh, I'm sure we all know people, don't we, who are rather like that. People who are uh, restless, uh, always searching for meaning and fulfillment without ever actually finding it. Now, I don't know, but maybe that's true for someone in this building today. Now, my key text in this rather fascinating passage is verse 18. Uh, I'll read it again. You might like to put your nose on it because that will be our focus, at least for the first few minutes. Verse 18, chapter 13, reads as follows. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Now, in case I lose you mid-flight, let me say up front that this verse is using the number 666, to tell us what not to pursue in our search for purpose and meaning in life. But before we dig a little deeper into that, we've got to ask, well, is this text even actually relevant for us this morning? Who is this person, the beast? Who's the Antichrist? And who are the people who are branded with this rather curious number? Are these people... Still to come at some distant point in the future. Is the Antichrist only going to appear at the very end of the age? Many sincere Christian people believe that. They say that the Antichrist and his followers won't appear until the end of human history. And if that's right, well, we would have to say that we might find this text interesting but not actually practically relevant to our everyday life because the Antichrist isn't obviously parading in person up and down the streets of Weinberg trying to persuade you and me to follow him. But I want to suggest to you that Revelation 13 is actually saying the exact opposite. It's saying that the Antichrist, who is called the beast in this chapter, is present in the world Right now, and he will be present until the end of time. And if I can convince you of that, well, then we can begin to understand the meaning of the number 666 and how all of this applies to you and me this morning. So glance with me, if you will, at uh, Revelation 13, verse 1, and look at how it describes the beast, because this is the first hint that the beast is with us today. Revelation 13, verse 1 reads, And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. Now that is exactly the same description of Satan, the devil, that we find in chapter 12 and verse 3. Glance back to it, if you will. Chapter 12, verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. So so the dragon in chapter 12 and the beast in chapter 13 both have seven heads and ten horns. Well, so what? Uh, Why does that even matter? Well, read on with me into chapter 13, verse 2. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. Now, if we were to go and look all of this up in the Old Testament, we would find that the leopard, and the bear, and the lion, and the ten horns are four symbols of four different empires. You can find that in Daniel chapter 7 and look it up later. They stand respectively for the empire of Babylon, then the Medo-Persian empire, the empire of Greece, and the empire of Rome. Now that is significant because, my dear friends, those empires spanned many hundreds of years. And the symbols that stand for those nations that spanned hundreds of years in Daniel chapter 7 are here in Revelation 13 applied to just the one beast. So I take it, friends, that the beast also spans hundreds of years. He wasn't just prowling around for a few years at the time of Christ. No, he, he lives on through human history. So notice what chapter 13 and verse 3 says, because this, I think, gives us another clue that the beast has been with us ever since the time of Christ. Verse 3, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Okay, so the beast has got a fatal wound, Is that something that's only going to happen in the far distant future? No, it isn't. This is a wound that has already been inflicted on the devil and all his servants, including the beast. So what wound are we talking about? Glance back to chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Now the voice in heaven says that at the cross, Christ defeated the devil and his angels. The devil was hurled down. He was decisively defeated by the blood of the Lamb. But there's a problem. What's the problem? again at Revelation 13 verse 3, it says, doesn't it, that the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but that the fatal wound had been healed. How on earth can a fatal wound be healed? Well, please remember with me that Revelation speaks to us visually. This is picture language. And the picture in chapter 13, verse 3, is showing us that at the cross, Christ inflicted a fatal wound on the devil and his servants. But God has allowed them to live on for a limited period of time. So let's uh, let's try and think of a human illustration to help us understand what's going on. Can you cast your mind back to D-Day? There have been various films made about D-Day towards the end of the Second World War. On the 6th of June, 1944, the Allies dealt the fatal blow to Hitler's armies through the largest seaborne invasion in military history. But Hitler's armies continued their resistance for a long time. In fact, it was another year before they finally surrendered and the war was over. But the point is that from D-Day onwards, the Allied victory was certain, even though some of the fiercest fighting of the war was still to come. And in exactly the same way, at the cross, the devil was decisively defeated. He was dealt a mortal wound, but he continues to resist. And his resistance is fierce. His resistance is powerful. His resistance is highly effective. And that's the message of chapter 13, verse 4. Have a look at that. Men worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who's like the beast? And in verse 5, he begins to deceive was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. Now, these very vivid and rather disturbing images are telling us that the Antichrist is busy on planet Earth this morning. Now, if that is right, where is he? Well, the human author of the book of Revelation was the Apostle John, who, as you know, also wrote the fourth gospel. And three New Testament letters. And in one of those letters, he tells us where to find the devil. And I should warn you, friends, this is actually a bit of a shock. So fasten your seatbelts and turn back in your Bible, please, to 1 John, the first letter of John, chapter 2, and verse 18. 1 John, chapter 2 verse 18. And while you're turning there, let me tell you that John was writing this letter to a church that had suffered a split, a church split. And they were suffering, they were battling, they were trying to understand what on earth was going on. They were worried if they were real Christians. 1 John 2, verse 18, John says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, Even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. Now, pause on that. It's saying, you see, that these people, these these antichrists, used to be part of John's ministry team. They'd been doing ministry in the local church, but they left. John says, doesn't he, quite clearly, they went out from us. And John goes on to say that uh, they didn't belong in his ministry team because they had a different message. What was that message? Look down to verse 22. 1 John 2 verse 22. John says, who's the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So that was their message. These people left John's ministry team and they were going around saying, Jesus is not the Christ. Uh, He's not God's king. He may be a nice person. He may be the most terrific moral teacher. But he's not God in human form. And uh, what is John's comment about these people? Read on, end of verse 22. End of verse 22, such a man is what? An Antichrist? No, that's not what the text says, is it? No, such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. And uh, was this perhaps just uh, a little local problem in a couple of churches 2,000 years ago, or is it rather more serious than that? Well, turn on to chapter 4. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now let this sink in. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, the beast, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So, friends, can you see that the Antichrist... The devil has been active in planet, on planet Earth for the last 2,000 years, and he's going to be around deceiving people about the person and work of Jesus Christ until Christ returns. And where do we find him? Well, we find him in the pulpits of churches that have moved away from the apostles' teaching on Christ. Is that a shock? I think it is. Now, if that's right, and the Antichrist is around today preaching a false gospel, then all of us are at risk of being branded with this rather curious number, 666. And we need to know how to avoid it. So come back with me now to Revelation 13, and let's turn our attention to this rather strange number. I guess some of you, perhaps down at the college, might know that throughout history, uh, people have been trying to calculate the names of either political leaders or church leaders they don't like by giving a numerical value to the letters in their names in the hope that that will add up to 666. Extraordinary, isn't it, how some people spend their time? So they decided that the letter A would be either 1 or 100, and B would be 2 or 200, and so on. And what these people did was to take a, a modern name and then put it back into the Greek. And then you would calculate the value of the letters in Greek. And if that didn't give you the number 666, you put the name into Hebrew. And if that didn't reach the total 666, you put the name into Latin. And if that didn't work, they would abbreviate the name and add up the value of the letters in the abbreviation. And if that didn't work, well, they would give the person a title, like Pope, or King, or Pastor. And so over the years, you see, people have said that 666 was code for Martin Luther, or the Pope, or Nero, or Adolf Hitler, or the Catholic Church. Or the Protestant Church. Because you see, with sufficient time and imagination, you can actually turn any name you like into the number 666 and tell the world that that person or that organization has been branded with the mark of the beast. Can I suggest that all of those attempts are on the wrong track? That in fact, The number 666 is just like all the other numbers in the book of Revelation. It is symbolic. It's not meant to be calculated in the literal way I've just described. So, for example, just to remind you, Revelation chapter 1 speaks about seven spirits before the throne of God. Does that mean there are seven holy spirits? No, it doesn't. Because in the the Bible, the number seven signifies completeness or fullness. So in chapter one, the, the seven spirits is a way of talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power. What about the seven churches in chapters two and three of Revelation? Well, we know that they were seven real historical churches, but all of the scholars agree that choosing seven churches was a way of representing all churches everywhere throughout the history of the church age, not just those particular seven local churches in the first century. Then in chapter 6, that the Lamb, who is Jesus, is pictured as having seven horns, where seven signifies the fullness of his power. We're told he also has seven eyes. Did Jesus really have seven eyes? I don't think so. His eyes signify his knowledge. Having seven eyes means that he sees or that he knows everything perfectly. So, friends, when we come across this number 666 in Revelation 13, 18, rather than you and I trying to impose our own ideas on the meaning... We must try and understand its significance symbolically. So come back to that verse, Revelation 13:18, and look again with me very carefully at what it actually says. It says, "This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number." Now pause on that phrase. 666 is man's number. In other words, it's the number of humanity. How does that help us? Well, it's saying that 666 signifies something about the entire human race. And I want to try and show you that it's a way of saying that the human race is incomplete. That it is fallen that it is unbelieving. How do we get there? We've already seen that the number seven represents perfection and completeness. And here, the number six presents us with a contrast with the perfect number seven. And the number six represents incompleteness and imperfection just because it's less than seven. Okay? For example, cast your mind back to the account of creation in Genesis. We're told there that God created everything in seven days. Interestingly, men and women were created on the sixth day. If you only had a six-day creation, it would have been an incomplete creation, and yet you know that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. But in Genesis, you see, man enters the rest of the seventh day, the Sabbath rest with God, and that makes it a perfect creation. And six represents imperfection. And here, in Revelation 13, it's symbolic of unbelieving humanity's incompleteness and imperfection outside of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the perfect seven. Only by believing in Christ can humanity achieve the perfection that the number seven represents. So, who is the beast? Are you still with me? The beast is any person or group, whether they're political, social, educational, economic, that tries to reach perfection and fulfilment apart from Jesus Christ. Notice, will you, that the beast is worshipped, verse 4. Men worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who's like the beast? Who can make war against him? You see, the beast sets himself up as the authority on human affairs, and he excludes Christ. He pushes Christ right out of the picture. And the imagery in this chapter is warning us that to try and find fulfillment and satisfaction on our own, apart from Christ, is actually the greatest example of incompleteness. Now think about that. Can you see the irony of that? Verse 18 is saying that if you, if you try and find completeness on your own, what you're actually destined for is incompleteness. That's why, you see, whenever people in the Bible reject God or worship themselves or fall short in some way of God's design for humanity, do you know what they're called in the Bible? They're called the beast. When the king of Assyria becomes proud, when the king of Babylon becomes proud, when the king of Egypt becomes proud, they are called, in scripture, the beast. Have uh, some of you read the book of Daniel? Perhaps you have. You may remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Don't look at it now. But there he is one evening. He's looking out over Babylon, which is an amazing city. And he says, this is what he says. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty. And a voice comes from heaven and says, because you're not giving glory to God, you're going to become a beast. And that is precisely what happens. So the number 666 is a way of talking about human beings not only in their incompleteness but in their beastly incompleteness when we try and find satisfaction and meaning and fulfilment apart from God. And I guess at times we've all done it. So that's our first point. We've taken an awfully long time to get there. I do apologise for that. But our first point is that 666 represents the incompleteness of humanity that comes from pride and self-reliance and ignores Christ. Tennessee Williams was uh, a poor playwright until his first success with a play called The Glass Menagerie. And then he had another success with, more famously I think, with Streetcar Named Desire. With success came fame and wealth, and uh, shortly before his death, he wrote an article for a famous magazine. And he said that when he got his fame and he got his money, he found security, a life of ease. But then he wrote, security is a kind of death, I think. And it can come to you in a storm of royalty checks. Ask anyone who's had the same kind of success that I've had and tried to find meaning in it. Did Tennessee Williams find satisfaction by the time he died? Well, not unless he came to a personal knowledge of Christ, because only Christ can provide the satisfaction that he was looking for. So in what ways, in what ways are you and I trying to find fulfillment, I wonder? Career? Sport? Family? Family? Whatever it is, if that is the only way that you're trying to find fulfillment, the void inside will remain. Because only Christ can fill the void. And apart from him, we are always going to be incomplete. If the Antichrist is present now in our culture, and I believe he is, we should do all we can not to be deceived. Because our culture is constantly encouraging us to be self-reliant, isn't it? It's what advertising does. You can do it. You can have it all. And when we believe that and we allow our lives and our priorities to be shaped by it, instead of fulfillment, we find we're branded with the number 666 Well, if this number, 666, is first and foremost a warning against the incompleteness that comes from pride, what else is it saying to us? Well, come with me to chapter 13 and verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. Now, pay attention. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. And verses 16 to 18 tell us that those who worship the beast, who worship the image who worship the idol, have the number 666 either on their right hand or on their forehead. And I think that's telling us that the number 666 not only speaks about the incompleteness that comes from self-reliance and pride, no, it also signifies religion without Christ. So, when verse 15 says that the beast would cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed, is that bringing up an echo in your mind, I wonder? Daniel chapter 3. Do you remember Daniel's three friends? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar built this marvelous tall gold statue of himself, commanded everybody to bow down and worship, and they refused. And uh, so they were thrown into a furnace, weren't they? And you remember, I'm sure, God saved them. And it's interesting, you know, we're told that the image they were ordered to bow down to was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. It's defined, it's described by sixes. And uh, since that famous episode, I'm sure, is somewhere in the background here, part of the idea of 666 in John's mind is the incompleteness that comes from idol worship. And the point, you see, is that a person can be terribly religious. But if their religion excludes Christ, they'll always be aware that they've, they've somehow missed something absolutely crucial. Is that a word for us this morning? You may not think so, because of course we Christians like to think that uh, our religion keeps Christ very firmly at the center of everything that we do and practice. But do we? Uh, Christmas, as you know, is just a few weeks away now. I can hardly believe it. I don't know where this year's gone. Uh, you know, don't you, that the media refuses to talk about Christmas anymore. It's now the festive season. Christ has been replaced by Santa Claus, presents, food, and time away with the family. The question, I think, is to what extent have you and I given way to that kind of thinking? Or when we think of Easter, what comes into our minds first? Do we first think of the cross and the resurrection, or do we first think of a few days off work and maybe a nice holiday somewhere outside Cape Town? Now, we all feel those temptations at times, but John, I think, is warning us that if we constantly give in to it, we're actually giving ourselves, a piece of ourselves, to a religion without Christ, And however faintly, that number, 666, is starting to be branded on us. So 666 signifies the incompleteness of pride and self-reliance. It represents religion without Christ, but there's a third thing that this number represents. Look, Look with me again, please, at verses 16 and 17. also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of his name, which is 666.
1: In other words,
0: in order to be secure financially, you had to be branded with the number, Now, in my uh, quiet times in the mornings recently, I've been working my way through 1 and 2 Kings in preparation for uh, preaching some of that text next year. I was very interested to see in 1 Kings chapter 10 that we're told there that King Solomon received 666 talents of gold every year. Now, you might think, well, that's just a coincidence, Simon, don't please make too much of it. And most commentators don't make anything of it at all. But the statement that Solomon accumulated 666 talents of gold every year is mentioned immediately after Solomon reached the pinnacle, the peak, the peak, the climax of his reign. So if you go back and read the context, you find the Queen of Sheba has just come to him from the ends of the earth, and she's testified... To Solomon's wisdom and his greatness. But immediately after she leaves, Solomon seems to forget that his wisdom was a gift from God and that his greatness was actually only a reflection of God's greatness. And the narrator of One Kings shows us that Solomon became self-reliant, And almost immediately, we're told in the text, he received 666 talents of gold every year. Why does the author of One Kings give us that detail? Because Deuteronomy 17 states quite clearly the requirements for Israel's king. Do you know what they are? Your king, O Israel, is not to accumulate large amounts of gold or silver, or many horses, or many wives. Well, Solomon did all three. He had a hat trick. And his reign ended in absolute disaster for him and his whole family. So I just suggest this to you. I'm not insisting on it. I just suggest to you that these 666 talents of gold that he accumulated almost certainly stand behind John's understanding of 666. It is John's way of warning us of the dehumanizing effect of man's dependence on wealth rather than almighty God. Ian's lent me a fascinating book called The Lords of Finance. In 1923, a group of the world's most successful businessmen met at Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Collectively, these men controlled more wealth than there was in the entire U.S. Treasury. Uh, For years, magazines held them up as role models and urged young men and women to follow their example. But 27 years later, what happened to these people? Well, Charles Schwab, who was president of the largest independent steel company, spent the last five years of his life living on borrowed money and he died penniless. Arthur Cutton, the greatest wheat speculator, died after losing all his money. Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange, was sent to Sing Sing Prison and was released only just before he died. Jesse Livermore, one of the richest men on Wall Street, committed suicide, as did Leon Fraser, who was the president of the Bank of International Settlements. Ivar Kruger was head of uh, one of the world's greatest business monopolies, the the manufacturer of matches, actually. And he also committed suicide. So you see... The quest to find our security in wealth by no means guarantees that we'll get it and it may very well destroy us. And that's because a commitment to financial success instead of to Christ is actually a mark of the beast. So dear friends, Revelation 13 verse 18 is warning us against three things. It's a warning, a powerful warning Against self reliance and pride. It's a warning against Christless religion. And it's a warning against dependence on the world's resources rather than on God. And I hope we've also learned this morning that verse 18 is not a mathematical riddle to be solved with our intellectual cleverness, it's symbolic. And the final proof of that is in the very next verse. Just look at it quickly. I'm giving you a sneak preview of next Sunday's sermon. Chapter 14, verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. What a lovely contrast. Instead of people bearing the mark of the beast, there's this marvelous multitude indicated by the symbolic number of 144,000, I'll explain that next week, bearing the names of the Father and the Lamb. And the names on the foreheads you see symbolize the presence of Christ and the Father that completes us. But the people bearing the mark 666 are forever incomplete because they refuse to trust in Christ. And no matter how hard they try to find meaning and fulfillment without Christ, they'll never find it, either in this life or in the life of the world to come. So I suggest that the question before us in our text this morning Is are we, among the 144,000, enjoying the presence of God now that leads to a life of completeness and fulfilment here and in the life to come? Or are we determined to live life on our own terms, rejecting Christ and bearing the mark of desperate incompleteness, maybe without ever realising it? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us and give us wisdom, give us understanding to see whether we're following the pattern of the world, seeking fulfillment and satisfaction, either by our own efforts, or in a religion that actually excludes Christ, or by depending on the world's resources, rather than on you, for our security. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.